Hi, David. Hello. So today you want to talk about the way how all too often therapy focused on what's happening inside the client. And um, we may be missing the impact that the group has on the person functioning. That's correct. Uh, Human beings are the most, one of the most social of all organisms. And we're acting like people are making decisions independently of the influence of say attachment figures. Now, People can do that, but the question is, do they? And about 80% of what we do is done automatically and on cue from the environment or subconsciously. And that behavior is shaped by our attachment figures. And there's amazing literature on that. So to ignore the behavior of attachment behaviors is continuing to influence. It doesn't stop when you turn five, as the analysts used to think. It goes on and on. And I found, especially dealing with severe family dysfunction and personality disorders, that I was no match. I could coach my patients on how to be assertive, for instance, and they'd learn it quite well, but then they'd go and try and be assertive with their families, and the next week they'd come back with their tails between their legs. Or they wouldn't do it at all because they were just too afraid and they make lame excuses. So I started getting interested in what was going on, and at first, people don't tell you. It's kind of don't ask, don't tell, because people are either ashamed of it or they didn't think it was important or they didn't think you thought it was important, or they're just trying to be protective of their families and, and not seem to blame everything on their families. But I started asking questions about, well, how are other people in the family reacting? And then I started having them sort of play their parents, and I would try out different strategies for discussing some mutual problems. And then I found out, my God, what you're up against. Why didn't you tell me that before? It was like, no wonder you act the way that you do. So I developed my own model of unified therapy. But you also have to figure out not only why your patient or client is acting the way they're acting, but why the family members are acting the way they're acting. To say that it's sort of in reaction to the parents who are sort of blaming them in a sense, although it's got nothing to do with blame, it's more of who's doing what, uh, is just punning the, the question of then why are they acting that way? And Murray Bowen would do a three-generational model, and I was very influenced by that, which would put everybody's behavior in context. And what I found so, out is so, that... The, so what you're, you're doing there is that sense of um, looking at everything within a context and a context being a system. It's not just that there is a current family system, but there's also the accumulated weight of the previous families. Right, and there's a history. Even, in a, even within a relationship, people just don't react to the last thing their mother said. They're, they react to it on the basis of their entire relationship with mom or dad. And in an observer, you don't know that because you're not privy yet. We don't have the Truman Show where you have a camera on them 24 hours a day and we can see what's really going on. And they're not always honest. I said they're either ashamed or they're protecting their, their, their parents. And often that's more important, the, the, the urge to protect the family and even make themselves look bad. So the other main thing that I came across was a concept from evolutionary biology called kin selection. Now, only about 20% of evolutionary biologists subscribe to it, but that's because it's politically incorrect. Way back in 1975, 
there was an agreement among the evolutionary biologists that they wouldn't talk about it because they thought it might lead to uh, social Darwinism. Not because they didn't think it was true, because even Darwin talked about it. And that says, you could have the best genetic adaptation in the universe, but if you don't live long enough to pass it down, guess what? It's lost. So what's saved is when the more, more members of the herd or the tribe have those traits, and people under certain circumstances are willing to sacrifice themselves for the good of the group because they're evolutionary prime to do that. Again, you can override that tendency, but there's a price to pay when you do that. Uh, but you know, you ask why are people willing to die for their country in a war? I mean, they're not going to pass their genes on if they do that, obviously. Um, now, if you're looking for evidence that people are selfish, it's easy to find, but it's usually directed outside the family, or it's kind of an act. When it comes to what's going on within the family, particularly with the primary attachment figures, because we come into this world completely helpless, we don't know how the universe works, we don't know how gravity works, we don't know we can move our hands, and we're primed to learn that from our attachment figures. Yeah, yeah. But so what, what you're talking about here is that uh, uh, evolution is not just evolution at the level of the individual, but the species as a whole. And what was necessary for our species uh, to, to, to evolve was that notion of the capacity of the individual to sacrifice for the group. And we're going to see that behavior in current life uh, in people... Right. So even if they, somebody, a client appears to be oppositional, I found that that's because they think that's what the family needs them to do. So they're not really being oppositional at all. They are playing the role of the black sheep because they think a family needs a black sheep to blame for certain other things going on. Mm -hmm. There was one other piece of the puzzle, which I read a book called Escape from Freedom by Eric Fromm a long time ago. It was written in early 40s. And he talked about how over history, the balance between individual needs and collectivist needs has shifted. So with the industrial revolution and modernization, there's more emphasis on individuality and less on being a cog in, a wheel, you know, in the machine. Uh, but people, whole families, when you do the genogram, you find that they get stuck in the past. So they have all these homeostatic mechanisms that the family systems people talked about, which are meant to enforce the old rules but they're kind of tempted to join the new roles. But because of the family's experiences, sometimes that's dangerous and the rest of the family invalidates it. And every family is different in this regard because of their own experiences. Like, like the role of women is a, is a, a classic example. Uh, back a couple hundred years ago, it made sense that women had to have a lot of babies because of, well, the more babies you have, the wealthier the family was. Uh, but then that all changed. Now the more babies you have, the poorer you are. And women had to go out and work. But we haven't really figured out how to do that yet. So what I find is that a lot of women are attracted to the new realities, but they feel guilty about it. And then they overindulge their kids. And, then we've, and that's been a disaster in terms of parental trends. So again, looking at the whole history of the family in context in their culture, because each ethnic group has their own rules and different people conform to them to different degrees. So it's not total stereotyping, but the stereotypes have some validity in, in looking at what, what the average person in that person in that culture will do. But again, everything's on a bell-shaped curve, so you can't classify every family by the average, obviously. That would be Foolish. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, but what you're talking about is that sense of there's going to be a lot of pressure 
for um, some traits, some attitudes, some uh, general attitudes toward the world to be uh, transmitted, even though they're no longer oper- operational or no longer useful in the they're world. They're not adaptive anymore. They yeah, used to adaptive. be. They yeah. used to be adaptive. Right. But so and so, you're talking about many levels. So we're talking about the individual having their own baggage that stuff that uh, individually is not adaptive. We're talking about the family culture, which exerts, or, or the the tribe or the group pressure, which exerts pressure again. That's you know implicit as opposed to explicit, and uh, also the is stuff that's inherited from the past again at an implicit level as opposed to explicit and often leading to a conflict about how to behave. I think yeah. the Freudians were only half right. They looked at what's going on inside each person, and they had a, a conflict between their biological urges and their conscience, which is their internalized values from their family. But what I found is that the whole family shares the same conflicts in a lot of cases. Yeah. It causes them to give off double messages about what they expect from everybody else. So yeah. let's say so, so maybe let's stay a little bit more on that notion of double messages where the important message is implicit and contradicts the explicit message. That's correct. Like for instance, uh, let's say that uh, your mother is constantly on your you're a female a female in her late twenties and your mother's constantly on you to get married because that's the right thing to do. Why aren't you married yet? What's the matter? You don't want to end up an old maid, blah, blah, blah. But on the other hand, she's always saying about what jerks all men are including your father. Um, so why would you want to get married if all men are jerks? So in order to keep mother happy, you have to find some kind of a way to meet both ends of a contradictory message. So what they might do, for example, is go out with a series of jerks. And whether or not they marry them would be dependent on other factors, like their relationship with their father or their grandfather or whatever. Uh, so they might mar- marry them and divorce it. So you, you ask why one woman keeps marries one alcoholic after another and leaves them. And you ask them, well, where do you meet them? And they go, well, in a bar. Well, uh, that's not an accident. Now you're doing it subconsciously. It's not, you don't make a conscious decision to do that. It, you're just reacting to cues in the environment because they're familiar. We like what's familiar, even if it's horribly uncomfortable. Somebody called it familiar discomfort. Mm-hmm. If we, meet somebody that family doesn't have similar issues, the relationship never works out. Right. I don't know how people find each other. It's like they have radar. It's like gaydar, you know, it's like gay people finding each other. It just amazes me how people can do that. But when you do the genograms, I always do the genogram of the spouse if they're married. And I find out that the issues are the same. Now it can be confusing because they could be complete opposites. But what they don't do is pick and choose when it comes to the issues. Like, you know, they're either unspontaneous or they're over spontaneous. <laughs> it's never just right. You know, it's never uh, Goldilocks. It's always yeah, yeah, either yeah. one extreme or the other, but that's the same. Or they can go back and forth between the two extremes. And a lot of time one extreme predominates, but if you wait long enough, you see the other one. Mm-hmm. And little kids are growing up in this environment, and Bowlby said that they're experts on their parents' motivations by the time they're two, and I kind of believe that, um, because they're studying it. That's where, they're, that's where they figure out how they're supposed to behave. But when you're getting all these mixed messages, it becomes a real problem. Like, how do you do that? And I find people are just amazingly ingenious at coming up with these kind of compromise solutions. 
Yeah, so there is there is that momentum toward the transmission of the implicit. Right, and it goes down, and it gets transmitted again when they kids grow up and marry. They marry mm-hmm. somebody with the same set of conflicts, and then they subject their kids to double messages. Now, some kids will escape, and that's another thing that drives me crazy. They uh, like the people that do um, heritability studies. They call the, the shared and the unshared environment. If you grew up in the same house, you have a shared environment. Well, that's nonsense. Parents do not treat all their children the same. Smothers Brothers had a whole routine about that and were widely liked about yeah. I always liked you best. Why would you think that they're the same? So often one child becomes it and becomes the focus of the conflict and the others may escape. And it looks like they're being selfish because they're going off and doing whatever they want to. Uh, but their position is, well, mom picked him. He's it, so why would we go against mom? She wants him to do it, not us. So it looks like they're being selfish, and in a way they are. But really, again, they're going along. The programming. The yeah. program. Now, which child becomes it depends on, can be anything. It can it could be the, the, the oldest or youngest position in the family or the opposite. It can be somebody who looks like grandma. It could be somebody with a certain temperament. It can be any number. And we can only make an educated guess about why one child became it. And if, one, and if the it somehow drops out of the role, then something I notice called what I call sibling substitution comes in. One of the other siblings who had been unaffected suddenly takes over the role. Again, if you didn't watch these people over time and know what questions to ask, because it's don't ask, don't tell, you'd never see this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so again, that's a, a, to the testimony to the power of that, uh, that implicit sense of what the relationship is that is maintained by the family maintained by the family and if we ignore it uh we just simply don't have a grip on reality i think that's exactly true and if we ignore it we're putting too much pressure on 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 our patients or clients uh because there's negative consequences to change if your whole family comes down on you and invalidates you, like, how can you treat your mother this way? Uh, that's very powerful. You think they're going to keep going if the whole, everybody they know and care about does that? I've had relatives that weren't even involved suddenly come out of the woodwork and start doing that. So it sounds impossible to, how are you going to deal with all that? Well, yes, good question. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, again, I took my cue from Marie Bowen. My, my, ther- my therapy method is, is based on actually a criticism of Bowen because what Bowen would do with his clients is he'd go, he would do the genogram with them and he'd discuss why everybody was acting the way that they were acting. And then he would send his clients back to their families to change the rules, so to speak, because they were more powerful at influencing the client than Bowen was. But he trained them to be sort of like Jay Haley therapists to use paradox and trickery and all that. And, some, and this, this guy named Dan Weil, who wrote a book called Couples Therapy, asked the question, well, why doesn't he train them to be Bowen therapists? So that's what my model is based on. We have to figure out, first we have to figure out the genogram and get all the data. You have to know what questions to ask and how to know when you're not being told the whole story. There's, there's a lot of tricks to doing that. But it's, it's quite doable. Your patients become very cooperative if you approach it correctly at that stage then you have to come up with a strategy for how they're going to bring this up to the parents without leading to fight flight or uh, freeze reaction in the parent which is the usual because the minute they bring up a problem the parents feel attacked and they get defensive and you know what happens when people get defensive they either fight flight or freeze right. and nothing ever gets solved so they have to figure out a way to approach the problem empathically 
with the parents who've been mistreating them, especially in cases where there's child abuse involved. And that, of course, is a huge challenge because how do you maintain empathy with somebody that's actively mistreating you? It's like they're kicking you in the knee and you're trying to be empathic. So there's a lot of strategies to do that, and they have to be practiced because they're very difficult. So we do role play. I want to I want to just take a moment there because it's such a it's a big 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 thing to absorb. You say that what the issue there is, you know, that having a grasp of what the system is, um, in order to change it, you cannot change it effectively without having empathy, and it requires having empathy for people who have abused you and continue to abuse you. So that's a big, big task. Huge task. People yeah. ask me how successful are your treatment. Well, if they do the homework, it's been, I find, very successful. But my biggest problem is getting people to do the homework. Even if they agree ahead of time and see it and think the strategy might work, they're still afraid to do it. It often takes a long time to get them to try. I mean, uh, I would almost say that the willingness to try it uh, is um, there... Uh, there's a lot of healing that must go into being able to be in the situation, to see it clearly as opposed to being in denial of it, and Correct. to have the ability to have both the self-compassion and empathy for others is, uh, is, is, is really a milestone. It's a big job. But, yeah. but usually, would, we're, usually we're pretty good. Almost, I'm sorry. So I would must say that what the, you know say many people would consider that getting that stage would be okay would be that the person is is healed but what you're saying is this is only a way in which the big part of the work remains to be done which is changing the environment in order for this change to be lasting and not just limited to the therapy room right you have to change the because they're more powerful at, at pushing people back into the old patterns than I am at reinforcing the new ones so uh, if you don't change but but i have to emphasize their job is not to fix their parent yeah their job, yeah, yeah. Their job is only to fix their relationship with their parent yes if be, be, anything be. if anything's going to help the parents this would be it but that's not their job right the parent may still act out with everybody else they can't do anything about that necessarily probably not but they can get the parent to quit acting out with them because if you change the way you react to them, that forces them to change the way they react to you. And there's a lot of things that can happen which push people, the whole system backwards, too. There's something called the game without end, where people really like what you're saying. The parents really like what they're saying, but they don't trust you because the history has been that you didn't act that way. The same with the parents. So people will do what they're asked to do in kind of a half-baked way. And if you criticize them for doing it in a half-baked way, then they go, see, you didn't really want us to do it in the first place. Let's say a husband, a traditional husband says, uh, I'll do the, you know, I'll help with the housework. Where, and he's thinking back, well, she's like the queen of the kitchen. She doesn't really want me there. So we'll put the dishes in the wrong place and do this. And she'll break, you know, every time he tries to help, it's never good enough. And he'll go, see, even though he was the one that was doing it badly on purpose. So you can warn people about that happening and how, and there's ways to counter once it gets started. And it may take you a while to realize it's even happened, but you can go back and say, Hey, remember what we talked about? I think it happened again. What did you think when I put the dishes in the wrong place that I really didn't want to do it? Didn't you? But that wasn't it. I thought you didn't want me to. And, and so you can go back and forth with this and old habits die hard. So, 
families fall back into old habits and you can't start blaming them and getting mad about it. You have to, again, say, gee, aren't we all human? We, we did it again, kind of thing. Um, and that works much better at that point because it's already kind of been discussed a little bit and everybody had kind of agreed maybe we could do these things. Uh, and so this, in this case, for instance, the example you mentioned with the husband and the wife, this is about seeing the husband as a client as opposed to seeing the two of them as a couple. Correct. Right. I warned the husband that the, the well, actually, I've been, the, the, it'd be so, either one that I'm seeing, and I have to describe. Yeah, no, no, but, I mean, in the, in, in, but it's one of them. And uh, the idea is working on one of them to change the dance so that uh, if the person changes their steps in the dance, the total, the two partners dance a different dance. Correct. But again, there's a lot of old habits that get, get in the way, and you have to be aware of that and yeah. be prepared for it at some level. Otherwise, you fall back into old habits. And we all have these old tapes in our heads. The parents do, and the adult children do. Um, I, can, I can sometimes do something that I know my parents wouldn't approve of that I think is fine, and I go ahead and do it. But it, I always hear that, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. And, you know, and I'm 71, and if I'm still hearing it, I, I can't believe I'm that unique that other people don't have similar experiences because um, during that period of time where we're learning how the universe works, there's something called call and response where literally uh, thousands or, of synaptic connections are being made in the brain every second. They're later uh, pruned so that they're decreased, probably by which ones get reinforced the most. Um, but they're less, they're more, res- those early tracks, especially fear tracks in a part of the brain called the amygdala are very resistant to the usual process of neuroplasticity. So other tracks may come and go, but those are really hard to get rid of. And that's right. what we're dealing with. Yeah. But if you're aware of that, then you, you can override, the cortex can override it, but it's very difficult. Yeah, yeah. So we're we're really in a situation in changing that pattern. It's not just changing a habit, but changing that fear-based conditioning. Fear-based conditioning. And there's also another issue, which is we when we first change, it doesn't feel real mm-hmm. because we don't know all the cues anymore. And that's called existential groundlessness. Uh, Yalom does a beautiful job of, of writing about this. But I think most people think that only uh, people like Sartre even bother with that sort of stuff because nobody's willing to do what it takes to experience it because it's such an obnoxious feeling. And I, you, uh, Masterson wrote about something called post-individuation depression in his borderline patients. When they started to get better, they'd feel worse because they didn't know who they were anymore. So paradoxically, this false self feels real yeah. And their, their real desires feel false. So, again, if you explain that to your patients and say it goes away, then they relax a little bit. There's mm-hmm. a name for it. But I've, I've seen other psychiatrists put people back on antidepressants again because they thought the, fa- the therapy had failed, when in fact it had succeeded. Yeah, so, so that's a very, very, um, very good roadmap. The roadmap you have is that um, we are social animals, therefore we're connected. Our ways of behaving, especially with close group like the family, are very, very interrelated. And um, as we, you know, with a lot of work, with a lot of awareness, uh, manage to change them, then what we gain is actually being in a 
terrifying environment where we no longer have what it is that sustains us in the familiar. And it is scary, and we feel like we've lost ourselves. Exactly right. So you have to tell people that as you get learn new cues, that feeling goes, goes away. Yeah. It's sort of like telling depressed people that their feeling that this is going to go on forever is the way depressed people think. They all think it's going to go on forever, but it doesn't. It's the same kind of a, of a technique, a reassuring yeah. technique, that we can't make this feeling go away, but you don't have, it's sort of like acceptance and commitment theory. You don't have to believe everything you feel and think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You have enough of the faith in it to, uh, to continue in those moments of doubt. Right, exactly. So that that kind of in a nutshell of what the kind of therapy I I think yeah yeah but so I'm 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 surprised you know not surprised but I'm 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 noticing the the relationship it has with say uh, a certain aspect of Buddhist philosophy about talking about the notion of emptiness and about the notion of um, you know what is real what is not real and of touching into uh, you know the that sense of emptiness. When the yeah. web of relationships that we take for granted is no longer there to sustain us, and we haven't yet, you know, uh, found a way to connect to a different perspective. That's exactly right. It's a uh, basis of existential psychotherapy, also, which a lot of uh, there's a lot of Buddhism ideas in there too. Again, anything you can take anything too far. Like I, I kind of object to some of them, people that do nothing but mindfulness, because I see that as a means to an end. I don't, I don't care how well you're tolerating stress. If somebody's following you around, uh, stabbing you in the shoulder with a penknife, I can give you an opiate so it doesn't hurt that much. But I think we need to work on getting rid of the guy stabbing you with the penknife. To me, that, that would be a, make much more uh, sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so essentially where we come up to is to say that uh, um, maybe that uh, our way of functioning is to interact in the world. And the purpose of therapy is not so much to change the way our minds work, but ultimately to change the way we relate to the world. Yeah, I didn't quite put it that way, but yeah, now that you say it, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But again, it's the, it's the kin group or the, or the ethnic group. It's not outsiders. People behave yeah. very differently with outsiders, again, for evolutionary reasons yeah yeah because that's uh, they're the people with whom we have more of the connections and the uh and and the and, and influence and we need them for our very survival yeah yeah especially when we're growing up because we don't mature very quickly mm-hmm. and so in that sense we're talking about therapy as a way of integrating the challenges of the paradox that those people who are closest to you and love you and allow you to live uh, can also be noxious to you. And (laughs) how to integrate these two uh, different truths, you know, and finding a way to navigate through them uh, in that family and in how it affects your outlook on life. Correct. And your other relationships and your, especially your relationships with spouses and children. Yeah, yeah. One other caution is that if if one member of a couple does does this therapy without including the other person in the whole process, then the other person feels betrayed. 
because there's a, they're in a mutual kind of codependent relationship where each is helping the other one play a role in their family of origin. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, one's saying, hey, I'm not going to do that anymore. Yeah. Um, so you have to include the spouse, and that can be tricky, too, in a very dysfunctional marriage, especially if there's abuse issues and domestic violence issues. And this is not easy stuff. It's not, uh, health insurance doesn't like this kind of treatment. It's, you can't do it fast. I'm sorry. It, yeah. it just cannot be done in 12 sessions. Yeah. <laughs> and the more disturbed the family is, the longer it takes. Yeah. It's long-term therapy. I'm sorry. You want to actually fix it. That's what's what you need, I think. Yeah. So is this a good place to end or would you want to add something? No, I think that's, that sounds like a pretty good place to stop. Thanks, David. Okay. So this has been a pleasure. <laughs> this is part of the Relational Implicit podcast. To see more and subscribe to the newsletter, go to relationalimplicit.com.